Hey everyone, welcome into Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about the new All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office website and just general exobiology. Um, with me today is my co-host, Garrett. What's up, man? Nothing much, man. I'm glad to be here. The show is sounding pretty good lately. I'm liking it. Yeah, so it should be a good one. So anything you want to start off with or you want to just start talking about the Arrow website? Yeah, let's get into it with this website first, okay. because, uh, yeah, they, they've been dragging their feet on this for months. I think it's been over a year now since they started yeah. this. And uh, this website has been pretty much just like useless for <laughs> my like, what, what do you make of it? I, I could make this thing like in, I don't know, a day or something. It's like <laughs> it's so clear that they were definitely like holding back uh information from well i think she even said that pretty much that you know whoever the uh undersecretary of defense for intelligence has been you know the big culprit in all this and you know going after whistleblowers and you know i think they tried to take away lose clearance uh gary reed i think was the head of usdi uh, they they're the ones who tried to take away uh lose um yeah, security clearance. But uh, what they come up with in you know the year long <laughs> time period it took to make this thing, uh, and it also had to be put under the uh, defense secretary, deputy defense secretary, to actually get something done. This and that was, position just changed, right? Like it's a new that Kathleen Hicks lady. No, is, she's no. she's been in that position. So basically, what happened? They signed into law that Arrow would be under the Deputy Secretary of Defense, but that's not exactly what happened. What happened was the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence uh, still ran the administrative um, role overseeing Arrow. So technically they did report directly to the secretary of defense, but you know, all the administrative decisions were still done by Uzdi. So the, the era website was definitely part of the uh, administrative uh, oversight of Uzdi. So that's probably why it got held back for, you know, the year or so it did. And then I guess Hicks found out about it or found out someone was kind of holding information back from her or um, it just wasn't getting done basically. So right. I guess like a month ago, she took the reins and um, you know, was like, what's going on with this website for whatever reason. I don't know if, you know, something happened all of a sudden where, or they wanted to get in front of the Grush uh, story and, you know, kind of tamp down any suspicion that was coming from that of like, you know, cover up by the DOD. Yeah, it's pretty shoddy. <laughs> it looks, yeah, it looks pretty crappy, but, um, and there's not really much on it. They just, so they basically didn't work on this thing for a fucking year and just threw something together at the last minute just to show they actually did something, I guess. I don't know. So let me ask you this. Do you think that this site would have changed or have been put up had Grush and Commander Fravor and Lieutenant Graves not testified in this open hearing? Because I feel like they wouldn't have done absolutely anything unless the, they literally twist their arm into showing some so sort of good faith effort on this topic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's hard to know. 
I think um, it could have been, you know, one of many things that spurred this, that lit a fire under their ass to actually start developing this thing. But I definitely think it didn't hurt. They keep trying to say they like have no idea what what Grush is talking about, and I don't know. I don't know if this was just to tamp down fears or I don't know, man. I th- I think the hearing could definitely have played a part in this thing getting um you know set up so quickly. I mean, that's why it looks so shitty though, is because it was clearly done in like two days. Um, and there's no new information on there. It's all just about what's going to come. You know, the, the new reporting mechanism isn't even close to being in place. They basically have the same like reports and stuff that they showed at the Senate hearing. And it's nothing new. Like it's all the stuff we've already seen. Um, every video. I'm on it, it right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm scrolling through it and it's all just the PowerPoint that they gave yeah. um, months and months ago. Exactly. And, uh, oh, my God. Yeah. The UAP uh, reporting trends slide. That's like a pie chart, and it looks like a fucking fifth grader made it on PowerPoint. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's so, the resolution is so bad, and you can barely even read anything if you zoom in. It's, it's crazy, but like, this is the best they can do. It's like someone took a thumbnail and threw it up there as like a regular picture. It's yeah, so I'm bad. surprised it didn't have the Wikipedia message that said, please donate $3 to keep yeah. this site running. I know. <laughs> seriously oh my god and i feel bad for the dude who actually made the website because he probably got fucking just thrown under the bus and was like oh. <laughs> you gotta you gotta put this shit up in two days because hicks is pissed or whatever the fuck and he did his best but it you know make his it looks job like- impossible set up to fail um, but yeah <laughs> it looks like it's just like black font on a white page <laughs> and it's just like it just There's looks a, like the yeah. most basic notepad. Like if you don't even have Microsoft Word on your computer and you just go in to <laughs> open your notepad, that's what it looks like on this website. It is so sketch. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Our fucking podcast website looks better than this. And we just <laughs> we t- you click like three buttons to make it. Like <laughs> oh my God. And I so guess what is this? What is this supposed to be? Are they like, is this the portal that if I, if I'm a pilot and I see a UFO that I have to go on this website and this is my, this is how I report it? Or does it go more into depth of like uh, how they're handling these types of activities? Or is this a portal for the public to keep tabs on what we know and what's been confirmed? Like I'm still having trouble grasping what exactly they're trying to convey with this site. It's a, uh... Essentially to fulfill like the the will of Congress and their legislation. I think they're still just piecing it together. You know, if it even comes together eventually, uh, we'll see. I think they just clearly, you know, for this first iteration, at least just needed to um, show they they did something (laughs) that the legislation required them to actually do. But I guess eventually they want this to be the reporting center for any uh, current or former government officials to kind of report any UAP sightings. Um, I guess it's military personnel and civilian pilots. I guess it's not really like for the public to submit your UFO videos to. I think that would actually be pretty awful. <laughs> Just be absolute mayhem with, you know, everyone uploading their their video. <laughs> and 
it appears to be military and civilian aviators. That's what the that's what I'm gathering because at the very bottom it says like if you're military personnel, you should report through this command service. And then at the bottom, it says civilian pilots are encouraged to promptly report UAP sightings to air traffic control. So it kind of gives you a little uh, sense of direction as to where to report these things. If you are one of those two listed uh, entities, you know, I guess they say it's going to be a place where they're going to post declassified videos. But I have a really hard time believing that they're going to post anything, you know, good here, I guess. Basically, what they have here is that Mazel orb. Do they even have that? I don't even think they have the orb. I'm trying to find video. Um, I don't see any. I see the presentation where they talk about the orbs. Yeah, they have the it's the UAP video Middle East object. Ah, Um, So they do have one sphere. It's still anomalous. And then the only other anomalous ones, I guess they said they haven't, contrary to what Kirkpatrick said in that first NASA meeting uh, for their UAP panel, where he said um, <laughs> something about the GoFast being a parallax effect or something, basically trying to uh, discredit the video as anything anomalous um, in public, while on the website right now, it still says it's unresolved, even after... I don't know when did they take that back in 2007 or some shit. So I thought it was earlier than that, dude. I, I yeah. could be wrong. Um, so that's still on there, listed as you know unidentified. But Kirkpatrick's out there saying this is a parallax effect, and uh, it's just so kind of like fucking weird how they're just kind of two faced with this stuff. And then on the website too, they have the presentation where there's actually extra slides from this. Uh, what was it? I guess it was the transportation department or some shit uh, where yeah, Kirkpatrick gave a presentation and um, and it basically shows that Arrow has a crash retrieval and reverse engineering process. I think they it basically says they coordinate <laughs> crash retrieval and reverse engineering. Kirkpatrick goes around uh, talking about how we haven't found any any proof of what David Rush claims, even though we uh, have in our own government, you know, slide that we are participating in the same exact thing that Grush is talking about. So how dare you ask me these questions that are clearly so stupid? They're stupid enough that we're actually doing them ourselves. I don't know, man. It's so weird how they act in the public and just try to brush this off as nothing. And I guess. That's kind of the military's way of doing things because they always want to seem in control and uh, able to protect the country. But um, I don't know. Clearly, uh, Kirkpatrick's mostly comfortable in public uh, trying to play down these sightings. And um, it's interesting that the actual Aero office itself is saying more about the reality of the phenomenon than the director. Did you read uh, Kirkpatrick's bio on here on this website? No. And it says, uh, I wanted to read you this sentence, dude. It says, in 2003, he was offered a program manager position in the National Reconnaissance Office and converted to CIA in 2005. In 2007, he was assigned as chief technology officer in a joint CIA-DIA program office, Uh where he later became division chief as a DIA officer. 
In 2010, he was asked to serve as the Space Control Portfolio Manager for the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Space and Intelligence Office of the Secretary of Defense. That's interesting. That is interesting. I didn't really I didn't know, know I didn't... he had any CIA or like DIA. I don't I didn't know. Yeah. I don't know who Kirk Pe- bro, even when I tried to learn about um this kind of relates to what we were talking about today, but like when I looked up, he's a he's a PhD. He's a uh, yeah, he's well a smart. studied guy. Yeah, he's yeah. a smart guy. And uh, when I I like to read, it, whenever someone has a PhD, I like to read papers that they've been involved with and research they've been involved with. And when I go into Kirkpatrick's, he's involved in a ton for one. But the other thing is like a lot of them have to do with plasma. Like almost all of them, bro. Like, I don't know what, why is that one of the elephants in the room when it comes to this topic is that like, this guy seems to be an expert on plasma and uh, has been involved with secret technologies for a long time. I feel like the wheels are starting to turn for a lot of people listening when they hear that is like, I don't know. I don't like to make any conclusions. You know what I'm saying? But like the, (laughs) this guy's track record, even on the website, that they provide is very interesting. Uh, but yeah, I did find the uh, part of the slide where, where Kirkpatrick's basically admitting to running a, well, I'll just read it. Uh, this one little section short, it's called UAP object recovery. So that in itself, <laughs> that's, that's the title of uh, you know, a little section on this PowerPoint presentation. Um uh, leads UAP recovery planning and execution in close collaboration with Aero SNT Group. I don't know what SNT means, but advisors. I bet it's con- scientific and technical or something. Oh, yeah. Science and technology. Yeah. That's definitely what it is. Second sentence is advises commands on the secure and safe handling, storage transport, and transfer of UAP objects and material for Aero SNT exploitation. So that's uh, crash retrieval and reverse engineering in the language of an arrow slide presentation given to the Department of Transportation. You know, <laughs> you'll never hear Kirkpatrick say anything close to that in uh, real life, like on a stage in public. The whole duality of that, like the kind of two-faced almost um, aspect of how Kirkpatrick plays plays the game and uh, obfuscates. I best case scenario is that this was all because of Arrow being, you know, in the Undersecretary of Defense's office. It hopefully he's wanted to say more, but just couldn't. I have a hard time believing that's the case, but um if he's finally going to start talking about the stuff that's on these actual slides that his office created, I think we're gonna be in a better position. But I am kind of meh on that who knows but he he actually did also work for um uh saic just the scientific applications international corporation he was um on the science committee there yeah they're definitely an interesting company they were mentioned in secret machines uh, i think the second fiction book they're like the only defense contractor he mentions in that book so i think they're uh definitely an, an important player in this perhaps even for you know cognitive um psi experiments because i know a lot of the uh stargate stuff went over to saic i think in the 90s the fact that um arrow has this uap object recovery section in their 
in their presentation is uh, something, that's for sure. We keep talking about this, dude, but it's like the language and how specific these things are. I don't know if you've gotten this impression, but like lately when I've been talking to people about UFOs or like what they've seen on the news or this new hearing or whatever, they'll end up talking about it like uh, they're like, oh, same old stuff, you know? And uh, as someone who is like paid a pretty close attention to this is like, I don't think this is the same old stuff. I think that like they're actually protecting these whistleblowers and they're actually trying to make progress on a topic that we haven't been able to have any progress on in like 70 plus years since Roswell, because ever since that's happened, we've talked about it before is it's just been a history, a long history of not giving straight answers on things that like people really care about. People are writing to their representatives every day, calling the representatives, calling staffers, telling them that they care about this topic. Yeah. I also wanted to say like, that was something uh, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp did a good job of on Joe Rogan was breaking that part of this down and being like, uh, this is why this is important. This is why this is different than how it's been before in the past. Yeah. I just think that like the way it's going right now, um, they have to pass this like newest bunch of legislation to give the proper protections to actually move forward with this topic. Cause that's where they're talking about like eminent domain and like uh, really being able to like use that carrot and stick approach that they were talking about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the tough parts is the eminent domain. In what way? You know, there's lobbyists are going all in on that one for sure that's right. uh definitely a tricky situation where you know you have people who may or may not be part of you know a defense contractor who maybe it's like their personal thing they don't want to give away but at the same time you're going to keep it for yourself and not like try to help us out by reverse engineering it i mean it's tough because a lot of people don't trust the government to do that in a way that would actually benefit humanity they think they'll just take it and you know tuck it away in another sap somewhere you know i think they might have to lighten up on a little bit of that uh eminent domain stuff to get the bill actually passed i think uh yeah there's definitely lobbyists working their asses off to uh to get that out of the legislation and they're probably pretty powerful when it comes to campaign donations uh for those defense contractors um oh my I'm sure, god i'm sure the, the their lobbyists uh have some sympathetic people in congress <laughs> yeah oh my yeah. god dude they they this is something we mentioned on an earlier podcast is like some of these companies spend more in lobbyists to lobby these politicians than they do in taxes yeah and that says something about the process that we're dealing with right now is like it truly is a system of bribery in my yep. opinion yeah and i also wanted to bring up from that interview from weaponized you mentioned was um i think corbell talked about basically said that these people who work on these programs, or at least some of them who, who are in charge of the programs, see this. Uh, he made the analogy of Gollum and, and the ring from Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, that was weird. They're precious. Like, it's uh, <laughs> it's so creepy to think about. Like, But I when you really think about it, it's like this technology is so exotic and probably it's like magic. It's it's. It's experiencing magic every day, probably. I guess you could see how people could become obsessed with that kind of thing. And it also makes me think about um, 
I've mentioned this before, what Nick Cook said in the Hunt for Zero Point, where you know, paperclip happened and all those Nazi scientists that came over and went into our space program and helped us, you know, get to the moon and stuff, their physics, their nonlinear physics, uh, also contained a ideology within it. A lot of the scientists who worked with these Nazi scientists, um, I guess when they were doing uh, this nonlinear type of physics, the ideology also um, rubbed off on, on everyone as they were learning this this nonlinear branch branch of physics. Um, that's what one of the uh, aerospace executives who who's a source for Nick Cook told him in that book. So that along with the idea that you know it's Gollum chasing um, Bilbo <laughs> around <laughs> around uh, you know around so, Middle Earth to you know basically find find his ring if if anyone took it like that technology that's what they'd be doing because they're obsessed with it and it also makes you wonder if it you know has anything to do with healing powers or has any any way to um you know extend lifespan of people you know that's why i think certain silicon valley you know individuals are trying to fund this stuff the kind of life life expansion uh technologies that this potentially could have maybe that leads into this idea of you know my precious the golem thing it's uh yeah, if you have the ring in in Lord of the Rings, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're like the most powerful, right? Like everyone is is yep. uh so I I was wondering if you are familiar <laughs> I I love Linda Howe, okay? I want to caveat what I'm saying first by saying I love Linda Howe, okay? She made um I think it was in the 70s or 80s, she made a great documentary called The Strange Harvest. And ever since she's been doing radio shows and she has her Earth Files show. And I didn't really listen to her for years and years. And the first thing that I had listened to her of was like in the past five years or so, she did an episode of her show and she was interviewing this guy named Edward Abbott. And Edward Abbott was described. He was a military guy and he was describing a near death experience he had had after like a heart surgery. He was also claiming that the United States was like partaking or participating in uh, communication with non-humans and that he had heard whispers about it all throughout the place he was stationed. He he one of the rumors he had heard was that the, uh, when we were in the Iraq war, that we were looking for a particular like ancient technology. And he was saying that like the way the Bush administration felt about this technology was like, if we have this, then we're safe. And if we find this and we win, like that was the way he was talking about it. And I know that's just a whistleblower type call in guy, but that one video in particular, he goes in depth about like what he experienced with his near death experience and stuff. And uh, when you're describing that one ring that keeps like, coming into my head of what i'm thinking about is this guy explaining how like there's this whole element to all of these like uh engagements that are happening internationally and wars can be just one example but like there's all sorts of things and uh resources or just like technologies apparently that might be like tucked away from some ancient time yeah that's that shot into my head the second you're talking about the one ring is like I wonder what kind of like ancient if there is like an archaeological ancient element to all this shit. I wonder how that like plays into this. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, it's also, you know, like the thing that Ross Coulthard talked about, um, that giant UFO that they had to build a uh, a constructive building over because it was too big to move. He also said it's not in the U.S. Makes you wonder, like, I have a hard time thinking of UFOs as like spaceships, like Star Trek or something like that. But if it is actually like that, you know, it's it's gigantic makes sense that <laughs> you wouldn't be able to move something that big i mean people talk about triangles the size of football fields <laughs> hard to move a football field especially if it's underground or there's something that needs excavating like people report having all sort that's the thing about talking to people who are quote-unquote experiencers is the things that people report seeing fall under such a wide spectrum yeah whether it's like a, a being or a craft, a lot of the things, something John Keel would say that a lot of his witnesses he'd interview would tell him is that they would have an experience and they'd go, you know, I thought that thing was alive. Whatever this was, this ball of light, like I really felt like this was alive. And uh, even Uri Geller talks about that when he was uh, supposedly handed a piece of a crashed UFO and told to hold it in his hand is that he felt like it was alive, I think is the way he described it. Yeah, I don't know what these materials are or how they interact with humans or their consciousness, but like, yeah, it's very curious to me because like what people desire to see does play into like what people report seeing and sometimes what people fear to see, you know? And uh, yeah, I I wonder if uh, how that plays in. There's so many elements to this, you know? know. It's like the the more that people want to cut and dry answer to these problems that like, I think they're going to be a little disappointed in that regard and that it may be far more complicated than we understand, you know, but I don't think that's something that should deter us. I think that's something that should like uh, motivate us, you know? Yeah. The whole plasma thing is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, it is it's the most uh, abundant, I guess, phase of matter in the universe. You know, if life were to, or intelligent life were to evolve out of a form of matter, why would it have to be a car- carbon-based solid life? And that that's a thing I think that a lot of, you know, astrobiologists are coming to terms with and uh, kind of expanding, kind of expanding their paradigm, I guess, with uh, is, you know, what kind of chemicals uh, put together make up life, what kind of processes, replication, things that viruses can do. You know, what are, what defines life, I guess, is... Um, it's kind of up in the air because we find, you know, things like prions as well. They basically make other proteins fold into fucked up ways <laughs> like they like they are. They base it's kind of crazy. They um somehow instruct other proteins to misfold without having any direct contact, which is weird. It's almost like they're t- telepathically like misfolding these proteins and influencing them in some way. I don't know. It's crazy. Dude, I'm reading this excerpt from uh the greatest show on earth, the evidence for evolution by Richard Dawkins. And he's like explaining how RNA and DNA are related and how like the origins of each came to be. And he says, RNA belongs to the same family of chain molecules as DNA, the polynucleotides. It is capable of carrying what amount to be the same four code letters as DNA And it indeed does so in living cells, carrying genetic information from DNA to where it can be used. 
DNA acts as the template for RNA code sequences to build up, and then protein sequences build up using RNA, not DNA, as their template. Some viruses have no DNA at all. RNA is their genetic molecule solely responsible for carrying genetic information from generation to generation. It reminds me of that of that Lou Elizondo quote that I, I'm going to read because nice. uh, <laughs> it's pretty important. I just want to do a kind of disclaimer. We are not uh, talking about like COVID came from space or any of that bullshit. Um, it's it's tough to have a conversation about this right now without feeling like you're feeding into, uh, you know, conspiracy theories about pandemics and that kind of thing. Obviously, all that shit is up in the air for whatever reason, and people feel one way or the other, but that's not at all where we're addressing right now. We're just talking about hypothetically, um, you know, just how life comes to be and what what actually defines life. Just wanted to make that clear. Uh, I just uh, wanted to say that first, but... Um, Dude, while you're looking for it, can I read you the uh, this one from the selfish gene about like colonies and symbiotic units of viruses? Absolutely. It's a pretty I cool think um, I think Gary Nolan, like that's like his highest recommended book is The Selfish oh, Gene. That was the first one that I've ever heard Richard Dawkins recommend when he was asked in like a lecture is um, they asked, like, what book would you start with of yours? And he he answered the I think it was one of the first books he actually published. It's he said that he could have called the book the altruistic gene. And when he explains like what the what the book is about and how we are like just vessels for these genes to do what they're meant to do is to carry on life. You know what I mean? And uh, so in this book, he, the, here's how he lays it out. He says. I speculate that we shall come to accept the more radical idea that each one of our genes, genes is a symbiotic unit. We are gigantic colonies of symbiotic genes. One cannot really speak of evidence for this idea, but as I tried to suggest in earlier chapters, it is really inherent in the very way we think about how genes work in sexual species. The other side of this coin is that viruses may be genes who have broken loose from colonies such as ourselves. Viruses consist of pure DNA or a related self-replicating molecule surrounded by a protein jacket. They are all parasitic. The suggestion is that they have evolved from rebel genes who escaped and now travel from body to body through the air rather than via the more conventional vehicles, sperms, and eggs. If this is true, we might as well regard ourselves as colonies of viruses. <laughs> um yeah dude that's fucking gnarly <laughs> and uh it definitely checks out it's crazy to think about just epigenetics and um transmutation um or something like that about what uh we're oh horizontal gene transfer that's what it is it's what um, is horizontal gene transfer it's the movement of genetic material between organisms other than by the transmission of dna from parents to offspring yeah it's kind of crazy yeah, horizontal gene transfer is the primary mechanism for the spread of antibiotic resistance in bacteria. What was it that Lou said about RNA? I didn't know if you yeah, that's what pulling I was that up. Yeah, that's what I was trying to bring up. Um, all right, this is what he said when he was Lou was asked about, you know, alien hybrids, which is actually even more interesting that he um he says this what I'm about to uh read. Uh he goes 
the notion of panspermia, that life may have come from somewhere else to here, and that's part of the way the universe works, is certainly a valid theory, I would suggest to you. As far as hybrids are concerned, my background in microbiology and immunology tells me we are a species of hybrids. We always have been. In fact, it's bad for our genetic pool if we don't have that type of diversity. What makes a healthy society is the fact that we have all sorts of different backgrounds. Most people have a diverse genetic background, and that's good for the species here on this planet. It's not a far leap to say that if it's good for this planet, that might actually be a universal trait. Maybe that's the way life exists and thrives throughout the universe, not just on our planet. Maybe this hybridization, and I know people kind of want to go down the rabbit hole of alien hybrids, but let's talk about that for a moment from a, from a very real sense. You have a virus. A virus really isn't any type of life form. It doesn't even have DNA, and yet it replicates and it protects itself, and it does a lot of things that life forms do. But it uses RNA, and it can inject its own RNA to change the sequencing of DNA in a host to make more viruses. So to some degree, viruses act a lot like a life form, and some scientists have speculated that maybe they are an alien life form. And we've just been living, in some cases symbiotically, and in some cases more parasitically, with alien life forms all along. You can't disprove that. There's some interesting evidence to suggest that maybe viruses aren't natural to here, to this biome we call Earth. It is essentially insinuating that viruses kind of make up life. Uh, like we're just, it's just like one giant puzzle, and all these viruses um, are what causes the genetic diversity that allows us to continue evolving. And uh, they're not from here. In that sense, uh, he's, he's talking about alien hybrids in a very real way. And it's not like, you know, you got injected with some extraterrestrial uh, genetic material or something. He's he's saying, I mean, I guess it is technically, it's just on a microscopic level. So, you know, it's not as cool of a story as, um, you know, something that actually, you know, looks like a gray or mantid or something like that, you know, right. abducting you. And it, But it is the same thing, theoretically. That was terrifying. <laughs> And also, it <laughs> was truly uh, <laughs> terrifying to hear that that yeah, came yeah. out of Lou Elizondo's mouth. Because uh, it's yeah. fun to think about, but like, oh my God, if that's true, that is freaky. Yeah, that is it, really freaky. And I read a uh, another article about how, how the arc, arc gene, um, it's this old, like ancient virus gene. It's basically responsible for how our neurons work and how at the base level, like consciousness is it's because of a virus. And uh, yeah, the same article says that, you know, there was a study that between 40, 40% and 80% of the human genome is actually ancient viruses. God <laughs> damn. Yeah. So that, that would definitely support what Elizondo is saying here. Another crazy thing I just read is that I guess a meteorite crashed in Algeria in, in 1990. And then, you know, after, I guess, two decades of analysis or three shit. Yeah. In 2020, <laughs> they um, found that this was basically uh, like in, in the fossil ice, uh, there was a protein. Um, it wasn't like a protein anyone had ever seen. On the ends of the uh, protein, there were molecules of, I think, oxygen, iron, and uh, lithium. In, a, in an order they had never seen before uh, in a protein. So I think technically, structurally, it was a protein. It just, it kind of got uh, buried 
because it hasn't come out in any peer-reviewed papers, you know, in those almost three years now, I guess, since preprint came out. But yeah, I found that really interesting that they actually found proteins in a meteorite. And um, who knows why that hasn't been peer-reviewed or I actually did a Google search for, I think it's pronounced hemolithin. Hemolithin. It's the, uh, that's the name that they named this protein. Uh, has not come out of a peer-reviewed journal. I think they submitted it. And one of the scientists uh, actually didn't even want to talk about it until it was peer-reviewed. And now it's just disappeared. And yeah, I searched Google um, and there were only eight results in the last year for uh, hemolithin. Yeah, straight up disappeared. There was like a few articles that came out, one in Vice and <laughs> stuff that was saying, hey, this could be important. And uh, yeah, it just it's gone. Poof. Dude, this was in Algeria. How did yeah. I never hear about this? I'm reading the page right now. I just Googled um, hemolithin. Yep. And it's a proposed protein containing iron and lithium. What the fuck? Yeah. Found in a meteorite discovered in Agemore, Algeria in 1990. God yeah. damn, So this bro. was a few steps down the line, you know? Yeah. From amino acid. Like this is, yeah, it's protein. What did you send me the other day about the New York Times article about the genetic bottleneck? That yeah. was something that was really fascinating to me. And does that like factor into this and like learning about who? I mean, I mean, of course it factors in, but like, <laughs> like how how has how often has that happened? I, I, forgive me if I'm ignorant about that, but do you know how uh, many bottlenecks that the the human species has gone through, or is that like the closest they've come to being extinct? In terms of just like our our understanding of our history, because it, dude, that article made it sound like humanity has like crashed and burned and came like very yeah. close to going extinct, and then the, like in the somehow like makes it to live another day, and uh, yeah, that uh that article I believe came out a few weeks ago from the Not New York even. Times. That was, uh, yeah, that was the article that actually made me able to write my, my most recent article. So I kind of started out with that. It's really interesting. I guess it's, uh, in China was the, that's where the study was done. Uh, scientists essentially found, uh, I guess through genetic emulation or, you know, going, going backwards, working backwards through, uh, I guess, let me, let me look it up. Cause I'm going to fuck it up. I already um, fucked it up because it said uh, <laughs> the bottleneck. I thought it was a hundred thousand years ago. I think it was nine hundred and thirty thousand yeah. years ago, and it lasted a hundred thousand years or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so it was. Yeah, it was pretty much the one bottleneck that I knew of, and which kind of coincided with like Elizondo's whole seventy thousand years ago. Something, uh, something changed, and. Um, humans went to the top of the food chain for whatever reason and you know he's kind of hinting at shit yeah one bottleneck around that time it was the uh around the time i guess it was blamed on the toba uh volcano eruption that i guess the hypothesis is that the climate changed because i guess a bunch of smoke went into the air and blocked out the sun and that caused an ice age or something like that so yeah that that's a known one uh, that happened 75,000 years ago, I think. Um, I'm not sure of any others besides this one that we're about to talk about. And this one is is quite a doozy. 
the study in China found that 930,000 years ago, ancestors of modern humans suffered a massive population crash. Uh, they point to drastic change in the climate uh, that occurred around that time. Our ancestors remained at low numbers, fewer than 1,280 breeding individuals. Yeah, it shrunk to 1,280. Um, Damn. So, so yeah, 98.7% of human ancestors were lost at the beginning of the bottleneck. So that's 99% of human ancestors just wiped out. <laughs> Uh, and then we stayed at those levels of, of around 1,280 breeding uh, individuals for 100,000 years. Over, like 117,000 years after that. Somehow we stayed at that low of a level. So I don't know what causes that. Uh, that's pretty nuts. The other crazy thing that kind of set me off. and Okay, so yeah, before the bottleneck... There were yeah ninety eight thousand breeding individuals, and it went down to twelve eighty, and it stayed that small for one hundred and seventeen thousand years. Then the population rebounded, and then there's also like a huge gap in the uh, fossil record between nine hundred and fifty thousand years ago and six hundred and fifty thousand years ago, and that is basically because there just weren't enough people to leave behind uh, fossils. So that's a nice little coincidence, um, and it also. Yeah, coincided with that huge climate shift. Yeah, so this is where it gets kind of crazy. So the article says, uh, Dr. Lee and his colleagues also drew attention to the fact that modern humans appear to have split from Neanderthals and Denisovans after their proposed population crash. They speculate that the two events are related. The researchers noted that most apes have 24 pairs of chromosomes. Humans only have 23, thanks to the fusion of two sets. After the crash, the scientists suggest a fused set of chromosomes may have arisen and spread through the tiny population. All humans with 24 pairs of chromosomes became extinct, while only the small isolated population with 23 pairs of chromosomes fortunately survived and passed down from generation to generation. So that's some shit. You know, 23 pairs of chromosomes that basically make us human. I think I think that's you know twenty three and me is the fucking website. So and then all the other apes have twenty four pairs of chromosomes. It's uh if that's the cause of that, whatever genetic bottleneck happened there, that that's kind of where my theory comes in there. So yeah. these Denisovans, they interbred with modern human or what we now know as modern humans, and like slowly introduced their genes into the modern human gene pool. Is that like a roughly kind of what happened in that, in what you explained there? Humans, yeah, they split from the two after the proposed population crash. What so, the fuck? So something happened there. It's nuts. <laughs> Damn, dude. Why didn't you send this to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the fusion of the, uh, of those two chromosomes happened because of that, and I guess, um, the Nisovans also have like 46 chromosomes instead of 48 that um, apes have. I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. So just to recap, a million years ago, the population went down to 1,280 breeding individuals. The population levels stayed that way for 100,000, 117,000 years. And then at that same time, our 
24th chromosome, I guess, fused. And then uh, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and uh, modern humans all started to split. So that all happened at, at the same time a million years ago. And then 74,000 years ago, there was the Toba super eruption that apparently caused a, another second human bottleneck, um, genetic bottleneck. That matches up with what Lou said about the stuff happening 70,000 years ago. So I don't know if that was another deviation or some sort of genetic change that, that caused us to eventually rise to the top of the food chain. But yeah, it seems like these, these bottlenecks happen in conjunction with cataclysm-type events. I find that interesting that if both of these uh, bottlenecks, there was some sort of giant change in Earth. I don't know. It just makes me think about what, what would cause um, some sort of pole shift or something like that. Or just an extinction event, you know, could come from meteorites or asteroids hitting the earth and <laughs> thinking about, you know, proteins that were found in a meteorite, your, your imagination can kind of just go wild there, which I kind of did in my recent article. Where <laughs> I talked about like a specifically like genetically engineered uh, virus that was sent by an advanced civilization to alter us um, in ways that they wanted wanted us to act and they could have done so by you know mutating the virus that they sent here in specific uh, ways that would suit their needs and, and then they wouldn't have to you know come here they could just launch a, you know an asteroid or even like a spaceship maybe that would take out a big part of again the breeding population then be able to spread from uh, patient zero or something like that it would be a lot less people to infect in order to infect the whole population, you know, have a higher percentage of people infected if there were less people to infect in the first place. Um, right. I don't know. It was just an idea I had. And then I looked, um, did you watch The Expanse? I started the first... That's like uh, the name of a show? Yeah, I guess you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I don't watch a whole lot Yeah, I've seen shows. the whole fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, there was this show called The Expanse. I watched like part of the first season. It was just too long. I've such a fucking attention problems these days. It's too bad. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's parent. It's a show about people living off world in the future. I, I don't want to get much more into it than that. But um, essentially, in one of the episodes, they have this thing called a proto molecule. A lot of people think that The Expanse has a lot of stuff in there. You know how like. Well, I think Bryce Zabel actually said that the the Navy came to him while he was working on Dark Skies and was like, "We'll tell you, uh, you know, the reality of of how of how the story is going to shake out." And uh, he was like, "No, that's not the story we want to tell." But apparently, <laughs> you know, like government intelligence people have had uh, influence on science fiction movies in the past. I think Spielberg got some of it in Close, Close Encounters. Oh, hell yeah. Um, Jacques Vallée, he based a character in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Jacques Vallée. I think his name was Lacombe, and he was the French scientist. That, that's uh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, yeah, so in, in the that line of thinking that, uh, you know, intelligence agencies and, and the DOD, like, help, help people tell, like, a more realistic story, I guess, or maybe it's not, but... Um, I don't know. I wonder if that happened on on the expanse because uh, one of the episodes is very. Um, I read it today after you know publishing my article. I think two days ago, and uh, it's like 
kind of saying exactly what my theory was in that article. I'm going to read a little bit of the um, of the fandom from from this episode, but it's a thing called the proto molecule, not a life form in itself. The proto molecule is a set of free floating instructions designed to adapt and guide other replicating systems. The proto molecule may be some form of nanotechnology. As molecular nanomachines, the protomolecule uses ionizing radiation as an energy source that it goes on to basically describe. So it's like, it's kind of a virus, basically, uh, like a nanotechnology, nanomachine uh, virus. So I didn't even think of that for my article. That's a, that's a pretty interesting way to think about it. The programming appears to terraform alien worlds to be habitable for its creators and once terraforming is completed establish a connection to its creators galactic wide ring network it is estimated that the proto molecule was created by the ring builders around two billion years in the past and launched as part of a bracewell probe swarm towards stars harboring planetary systems having conditions for the emergence and evolution of life such replicators could be powered by energy from chemical bonds such as life-based carbon, silicon, or other elements, and also by any kind of photons or even radioactivity. In its primordial form, the protomolecule was the idle dormant agent being activated when a replication mechanism was encountered. Then, very similar to stem cells, the protomolecule began to use this rep replicator to grow, alter, and adapt itself according to hard-coded prime directive. When activated, the protomolecule carries out the program directive using any material, uh, for example, biomass. By absorbing living matter, the protomolecule does not build consciousness or collective consciousness of human or other origin. Absorbed individual consciousness becomes autonomous subprocesses of artificial extraterrestrial intelligence, but not consciousness. And then it basically turns into a hive mind. In fact, it, yeah, it's fucking nuts. It basically acts as a virus to carry out the race who made it uh, carry out their will and terraform planets. And when they're done terraforming, open a fucking wormhole. <laughs> so they're uh, the race that created these nanotechnologies can just pop over. <laughs> oh, my God. Something that's real interesting to me, you learn about the insect world, how so much of like controlling behavior seems commonplace with chemicals and then when we remove ourselves a few uh degrees of magnitude from that as human beings we look at things like that and we're like oh well like we're human beings we wouldn't be like <laughs> led to some thing like unbeknownst to us and the point i was making was like uh ants there's chemicals and fungi that uh, can be consumed by ants and it completely changes their behavior. There's times when like entire members of a colony can come become infested with one particular fungi. If that particular fungi covers the whole body of the ant, the behavioral activity of the ant is seriously infected or seriously affected by the fungal infection. There was that show. What was that show where, uh, the things are like growing out of fucking insects. It was affecting a fungus was like affecting human behavior. Oh, it was uh, the last of us. Last of us. Yeah, that's yes. Here's another one. So you're talking about, you know, how, how fungus can alter behavior and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to send some sort of micro across the galaxy or whatever, 
and just bash into the planet and release uh, whatever kind of microbe you put on, you know, either the meteor or the ship or whatever you, you know, sent to get it here. You know, some of these microbes can withstand cosmic rays. Um, you know, those water bears or whatever just float out in space and are totally fine. Right. Um, <laughs> those and, things are like invincible. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I just always <laughs> think of the, the South Park episode. Where, <laughs> With the Taylor Swift? <laughs> no, where they're... Uh, water bears are like the, the nfl is trying to um keep keep people in the stands and they're just putting water bears on each seat with a, in a, <laughs> in a bowl of water it's hilarious um if they wanted to alter our behavior through some sort of microbe infection i mean there's tons of examples of that like rabies makes you aggressive and then there was actually a, a brain it makes you like not want water and shit right like yeah. if you have rabies, aren't you like uh, they call it like hydrophobic or some shit? If uh, you don't like, you lose your appetite and you become like freaked out by water. Is my understanding of like when you get rabies? I think so. I don't. I don't know much about rabies. <laughs> yeah, I don't want. Please don't put that in the. <laughs> I, I just know my dog got a shot and uh, she's okay. She can go to the vet without. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's another kind of parasite. It's called Toxoplasma gondii, G-O-N-D-I-I. And uh, people with intermittent explosive disorder, which causes outbreaks of anger, are twice as likely to have been infected with Toxoplasma gondii. <laughs> yeah, this is a parasite. It is thought that up to a third of the British population have been infected. Yeah, if you have <laughs> uh, rage disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, you're twice as likely to have had this parasite. So that's terrifying too. Definitely another example of how uh, you know microbes can can get in there and fuck with your genes and alter your uh, your behavior. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe we got hit with uh, one of these fucking parasites and then flipped out and killed everyone that didn't look like us. I don't. Know. <laughs> or uh that was immune to whatever the parasite was i don't know it's it's fucking wild to think about we were talking about we were almost doing it like tongue-in-cheek a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the uh mind parasites book but this is like real shit dude. <laughs> it's this, is like, this is way too real dude <laughs> yeah it's a real fucking yeah mind parasite that uh causes you to fucking freak out yeah it's nuts <laughs> the, the one i was trying to explain about the ants i don't i probably butchered the explanation Pheromones? Is that... it's not well the thing was is like i wanted to read more about ants when gary nolan made the analogy about it well there was a bunch of reasons one was the gary nolan analogy about uh how they communicate by scent right and then the other one was the uh crypto terrestrials book and the, he makes so many references to insects and uh, then there's Luis Elizondo in involvement with like parasitology. And uh, apparently that was one of the subjects he's pretty well versed in. And uh, given all those things, I wanted to learn more about insects and parasites and just biology in general. And uh, that led me to this author, E.O. Wilson's book, Ants, or The Ants is what it's called. And uh he talks about how these like ant colonies become infected by this fucking fungus and they'll like kill their own queen and kill their mothers. And like, it's just based off this one little chemical that like completely changes 
what what their behavior is like it's very strange because like uh i think i sent you that when i was reading that book about honeybees and how different honeybees are like tasked for different roles just from the get-go it seems like ants kind of fall into line in a similar way like they have their own little hierarchies the insect element of all this and when we use terms like hive mind um or the swarm and uh or even tom DeLong used the term ankle biters like yeah. it definitely seems like there's some sort of like um at least in my opinion when i hear terms like that it seems like they're trying to say it without saying it that it has something to do with biology we probably understand it's just very foreign to the way humans think if that makes sense and another thing um having to do with this i think in um yeah the crypto terrestrials mac mac tony's book uh is rest in peace yeah he talks about a crypto terrestrial uh presence on the planet and kind of hypothesizes that they are basically at a genetic bottleneck and that you know their dna has has basically been spent <laughs> and and what they're trying to do is is kind of fix it um, and I think Tom Tom actually says that too, that there may be groups of humans working with, you know, some kind of more advanced population, like non-human, and they don't have the genetic diversity to to be a powerful species anymore, and that they're trying to fix what's wrong. They're using a human group, I guess, a breakaway civilization type group is helping them uh, try to fix fix their dna or whatever that's a really interesting uh idea kind of ties in with this i mean you can go into crazy conspiracy world with all this shit but I, sure. I do think like i think like the directed panspermia idea is definitely something that's credible and it's been hypothesized about and kind of speculated about by respected scientists over the years yeah but, the, um, one of the the guy that found the double helix structure of the dna molecule um, I think Francis Crick and another scientist named Leslie Orgel, they had put out a paper or a series of papers, and they talked about this idea called directed panspermia, the yeah. idea that like some other advanced civilization that had uh, uh, evolved by Darwinian means already, um, maybe they filled the nose cone of some sort of probe with very simple, like rudimentary molecules that they can send off to some other celestial body. And from there, life can expand in a targeted and controlled way is the way I understand that theory to be. It's, it's quite interesting. And it, I think it's a theory that like, uh, it's just so disappointing to me when, when people try to think outside the box like that, how uh, it always seems like people roll their eyes at ideas like that, which, in my opinion, as time passes, an idea like that becomes more and more plausible as we see, like, like we, we were discussing it the other day with, like, I think they call them extremophiles, like yeah. uh, types of life that can exist in, like, what would they call them? Lava beds, like under our mm -hmm. underneath our ocean floors. Uh, and geothermal like, uh, vents. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Geothermal vents. And uh, just extreme conditions, maybe down in the Antarctic where it's extremely harsh and there's not a whole lot of 
um, areas where it's like great for vegetation and great for life to exist in abundance at all. There's areas where the conditions are so extreme, we don't expect to find life, but we're still finding it. I think this is just going to fall into place like these other things is that it's just like, yeah, it's strange. It seems like it's an outlier, but it's still <laughs> something that is like not something we should just dismiss entirely, you know? Yeah. And that that's basically what like a shadow biosphere is when when actual scientists talk about it is, um, you know, the kind of life that works in a way that we don't really consider life yet. So there's kind of this gray area. We're seeming to break through, I think, um, exoplanets and what they're searching for. Uh, they're kind of opening the aperture of of their hunt for for extraterrestrial life. And, you know, one would think that would translate back down to our own planet. But I think that's going to be a tougher sell. I mean, if the evidence is there on another planet that, hey, this is behaving like, you know, the way life does, it's it's got these processes that aren't technically biological, but you know, are doing some of the same things that biological life does. Um, yeah, I think that they can't ignore that evidence and it's going to really kind of change the way we look at what being alive is and, uh, you know, can look for on our planet. Yeah, the whole extremophile thing is really interesting. And that's, um, I found another article that came out essentially saying that you know, microbes can arrive on our planet by, um, by hitching a ride on a meteor. They can survive the shockwave. Bacteria riding on an incoming meteorite may be able to survive the violent shockwave created when it crash lands on a planet. Their cell walls have been seen to rapidly harden and relax after a sudden shock compression, enabling them to bounce back even after an extreme collision. The microbes not only survived short blasts of pressure, but went on to reproduce in colonies. On Earth prior to and during the late heavy bombardment 3.8 billion years ago, when the planet was hammered by meteorites, this type of bacteria could have not only survived, but thrived. So if some sort of infectious agent could survive and even thrive after such a huge shockwave and get past that, it kind of makes sense, again, from that kind of theory that I put forward before. I'm getting uh, Andromeda strain vibes. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I that's am. That's like an old book that like... Uh, it's that's one of the earliest, in my opinion, like thought experiment books that like takes you away from thinking that it's going to be some little fella in a saucer. It makes yep. you think that like the what we picture an alien can be or what we picture an alien, quote unquote, to be, it can be very different. And uh, you see that nowadays in like uh, different depictions of what aliens could be but like more or less they usually depict it as like a little fella in a spaceship the thing is is like andromeda strain makes you think like this could be much smaller and much more subtle than uh someone that's like coming and landing on the white house lawn yeah and it's definitely way less fun and uh, <laughs> for sure <laughs> hey, way less exciting of a way movie much more of a bummer um yeah <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is what i've been getting into man and uh been having a, a great time <laughs> you have no idea oh my god what do we i wrote or exobiology intelligent yeah. plasma and then uh, i think we're a little past that right now yeah 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 <laughs> And it also all like brings me back to that one 
section in uh lavenda ended one of the chapters in um secret machines where he he talks about uh he goes why have they not invaded people ask why have they not simply come in destroyed our weapon systems and put their webbed feet down and forced peace on earth uh this is why because they can't we are in a symbiotic relationship with the alien we have always been since that first mention of the sons of God and the daughters of men, they are not all powerful. They are just powerful in ways we are not, and they need us for that reason. And God help us, we need them. Yeah, I don't like that also. <laughs> this context of fucking uh, symbiotic <laughs> parasites and oh, God. We'll leave it to Peter Lavenda to leave us speechless. I know. Because goddamn, there's very few people that <laughs> I feel like you can write something that we're just like, goddamn, <laughs> Peter Lavenda, man. He really could sum it up. And uh, yeah, I dude, know. his Sinister Forces trilogy is outstanding to those interested in this type of topic. Is uh, Yeah, he's been he's been at this for years. We can even tie this into like the remote viewing thing we did uh, last week. We okay. talked about this army doctor named Andrea Puharic, and Puharic wrote a book called The Sacred Mushroom, and he was very interested in uh, different psychedelic plants and uh, their potential connections to human psychic ability, like telekinesis or like you name it. He he was he was very interested in that and. In Annie Jacobson's book, Phenomena, she talks about how Puharic was the head of a sub-project of MKUltra that involved hallucinogenic mushrooms, right? On that note, there was a, a man named Terrence McKenna, who is now dead, but um, he was a brilliant man, in my opinion. And he was like this guy who wanted to protect these uh uh, cultural shamanistic plants and he wanted to explore hallucinogens and he was a mathematician and i found him brilliant he was a very like warm loving um just different energy individual and people who are fans of terrence will know what i'm talking about um but terrence would experiment a ton with uh hallucinogens and he points out that like uh in the West, when we started drinking coffee, coffee was considered a hallucinogen. And it took us a couple of years for our culture to kind of like integrate coffee into being something that's part of our daily lives. And he made the, he makes the point that like uh, what the telescope is to astronomy is what psychedelics could be for consciousness is like it's a it's a, a tool. And um, as long as you're not abusing that tool, you can probably find out a lot of interesting things about yourself and about the world you live in and the, the way your mind works. So there's this one McKenna like lecture and he's talking about he uses this phrase he calls the or term he calls the heroic dose. And he, when he's talking about psilocybin, um, like this this form of mushroom, he he says that at five dried grams, he calls this amount of psilocybin the heroic dose. He said that when you take the heroic dose of uh, psilocybin, this five dried grams number, he points out, is that uh, it's your brain enters this state where he says it's very easy to find this like hierophant voice within you. 
and he says like a big part of the psychedelic experience when you're taking that heroic dose quote unquote of psilocybin is to come out of the experience with something that you know you didn't already know you know what i'm saying like something yeah. that it tells makes it abundantly clear that you were accessing some other source of information it's you're not just talking to the back of your own head is the way he put it so anyways i heard him talk about that and he he, he even equated it to uh the character virgil and dante it's this guiding voice that like if if uh you like calm yourself and allow yourself to take this amount of psilocybin that it's an area you can explore now i've never taken psilocybin personally um but i know people who have and when i read that to them they in every instance would be like yeah I can see what he's saying right now. That was interesting enough. But then I listened back to the thing I mentioned last week, which was that hour-long Jack Sarfati audio clip of him talking to Russell Targ and Hal Putoff. And I think his name is Brian O'Regan. He was an assistant of Edgar Mitchell over at Stanford Research Institute right after they had studied Uri Geller. And in the very like first minute or two minutes, they they mention, and I never noticed this until I listened back, they mention that Warner Von Braun had had his own experience. Okay, so in the in the beginning of this audio clip, it's Russell Targ, Jack Sarfati, Hal Putoff, and Brian O'Regan, who's uh, apparently this assistant to Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and uh, who's real interested in consciousness and psychic research. In the very first minute or so of this audio clip they start talking about how von braun had his own experience the way he describes it is that it was like virgil to dante it's not von braun, braun describing it's one of these other men in the audio clip but like when they said that and it matched like word for word the way mckenna described it it made me think like I think that guys much longer than we anticipate were exploring consciousness. That's the only real assumption I could draw from it. That that just little clip really like made me interested in learning more about like psilocybin and fungi and like what these different states do to our consciousness. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a, a fascinating little anecdote to uh hear that about about von braun who's a guy who has a whole bunch of rumors surrounding him and swirling around him already and i hope we can find someone that like knows a lot about that type of experience especially concerning him yeah I, someone asked me to trip balls with a nazi I don't know. <laughs> probably be like nah, yeah yeah i've done it i've done uh mushrooms a few times back back in college and it, it was fun i never had like a mystical experience probably because i was uh drinking at the time too so but yeah i mean it's fun but i i'm not gonna get into my my drug history but uh yeah when i do that stuff i get a little more um less social i guess i don't know i have like the opposite reaction certain people do but um that's how it works man i guess the, just chemicals affect different people differently uh and <laughs> just imagine like yeah back when there was no any any electricity or anything like that, no technology whatsoever. I mean, why wouldn't you just trip like 
two trucks you fucking found on the ground. It's it, it was probably such a different um, perception of drugs back when they didn't have any science to kind of, I guess, make it <laughs> taboo or something like that. But um, or any government that you know told people not to not to do them. It was just part of nature. And, right. Uh, I, I had nothing else better to do, and like was done with uh, hunting for the day or whatever the fuck. Um, I'd probably chill with the shaman and take some take some caps or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> man. Yeah. The whole um, stoned ape theory is is very interesting too. The, oh, that's uh, Paul Stamens, right? Is it? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It might be McKenna. Well, I know Terrence has discussed that before, but yeah, I, I think don't that's know. Probably if... what I've seen. But actually, maybe not. Paul Stamets. No, it made... was um, first proposed by ethnobotanist and mystic Terrence McKenna. It was what? Food of the Gods. Yeah, that's so gangster. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, this yeah, is it's... the idea that like uh, our ancestors were like walking through pastures overturning cow patties and yep. like consuming these psychedelics and it was contributing a huge amount to the growth of the human brain right or is yeah it, here's that, that here's that word cognitive revolution again the theory claims that the transition from homo erectus to homo sapiens and the cognitive revolution was caused by the addition of psilocybin mushrooms uh, into the human diet around a hundred thousand years ago. Basically, it was like our our consciousness <laughs> expanded because they were the easiest things to eat, and we were following cows around, eating their fungus off their shit. And uh, yeah, <laughs> sounds maybe another... like a human being. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the reason for cattle mutilations. They just I don't know. <laughs> Dumbass joke. I'm gonna cut that. <laughs> Psychedelics are definitely interesting. Um, and just the fact that, you know, when you take them, EEGs or whatever, um, you know, I think brain, that's right. EEG. Yeah. yeah. I think it's EEG, whatever those, uh, brain sensors are that, that detect different areas of the brain, um, you know, different activity. Uh, when you take like psychedelics, I guess they psychedelics also shut off the default mode network. Um, and that was kind of what I was talking about in a previous episode where we bring in like the holographic theory and maybe you know mushrooms actually lets um some of the information outside of our filter we evolved um maybe it maybe it shuts some of those filters off and lets some of that you know information quantum information into your into your brain that otherwise wouldn't be coming in and um that quantum information is part of the collective unconscious outside the filter <laughs> Just, so in uh, other words you believe in little green men you're saying nah machine elves bro <laughs> it's all about machine elves and um oh god they, they fucking run the world dude <laughs> but um i think that's a good place to wrap up been going a while so it's gonna take me forever to edit <laughs> hell yeah bro but yeah man you want to uh plug anything you got that article coming out yeah, bro, I'm dude, I'm trying, but every every day I feel like I read something that I have to add to it and I'm like uh yep. that's one of the funnest parts about following the evidence is like you can follow the evidence and it leads you down all sorts of like has that dude, we're talking about prions right now and yeah. this is a UFO show, you know? It's like the <laughs> fuck seriously. <laughs> oh my god. God, that people fucking hate this episode probably. I don't, I don't think so, dude. <laughs> 
I think that we're right where the listeners want us to be. Uh, maybe, maybe listen to this in a year, and it'll probably be a lot more relevant. <laughs> we'll find out. Like, yeah, we're all made yeah, of dude. space COVID. <laughs> Again, we're not talking about that at all. This has nothing to do with COVID. It's um, it's really just a speculation on uh, you know, the structure of viruses and that kind of thing in general. Um. Do you um, want to plug anything, dude? Yeah, uh, I have an article on this exact thing that just came out. It's actually for uh, paid subscribers only because of the content. And uh, I don't want that shit fucking going all over the internet. Like, yeah, like space COVID. <laughs> so, yeah, that's for um, yeah paid subscribers only. I think uh, I think I'll probably write more outlandish stuff. Not outlandish, but just like more speculative stuff just for you know people who who appreciate me enough to know that i'm not crazy when i write this stuff um right rather than having it all over the end like yeah anyway uh but yeah check that out it's called what is it called an unnatural selection so yeah that's uh pretty <laughs> provocative um <laughs> yeah listen to this podcast um i guess you are already <laughs> and, uh yeah we'll see you uh next week yeah thanks for listening thanks guys